Wow. On with a bang. I'm yeah. And I, I spelled it right the first time. He just must have not liked me. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba new news. Scuba Obsessed episode 469 is recorded live August 29th, 2020. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where I am so busy I don't know what to do. Joining me this week... We have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Well, so far, so good. No snow yet, so I'm happy. Yeah, I was talking to our friends down in Missouri, and uh, I think they said they had a little bit of uh, flurries happen the other day. Better them than me. That, that's that's my thinking. It's, uh, I know. I, I can remember as a kid we would have... Uh, snow occasionally on on halloween but that's it's too early i don't want it yet well what what do we have 54 today uh 54 for high today yeah well i think it's supposed to be a little bit nicer next week i think next week it's supposed to get in the 60s i know it's supposed to be windy starting sunday it's pretty breezy the other day here we had 18 uh-huh. knot winds, yet down in Michigan City it was six. Wow, that's quite a difference. Is it uh, normally, yes, it is. Is it normally that big a difference? <laughs> no, it isn't, but we've been having that weird wind shear aspect again this year. That They'll tell me the wind is such and such, you know, which is flyable, 10 knots, visibility six miles, whatever. And then they say caution from zero to 2,000 feet, 40 knot wind shear. Ain't going to happen, buddy. <laughs> I've been there once or twice, and it's like, I check that real careful now. Yeah, there's other days you can go. <laughs> you oh, yeah. Have to, you don't have I, to pick the rough times. Oh, I went up that one time, and it said I went seven miles straight out before I could finally turn and come right back to the freaking airport. Wow. That's oh, yeah, you're glad you could make it back to the airport. Well, those are the days you're, you, it's always, I'd rather be. Down here saying, I wish I were up there, then up there wishing I were on the ground. <laughs> yes. I mean, one way you got a chance. The other way, you plan it, you know, pretty close to your vest. But you get out there and it's nice and flat, windsock's dead, you get right above the freaking trees and turns you sideways. It gets your freaking attention. That's when you're glad you don't have a passenger with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're inventing some new words, I suppose. I, we flew years ago. I was taking a friend up, and we, we wound up going down to Michigan City. And as we landed, he looks over to me and says, were you as scared as I was? <laughs> oh. <laughs> but he was really good. He didn't show it. But, uh, yeah, I'm not really a fan of crosswinds. There's nothing wrong with having it easy and safe. Yeah, I'm strictly a fair weather person. I like it nice. 
That's one advantage too, because if you get once you get over the the coast, it's flat because you don't have that difference in temperature based on different coloration of the vegetation. Oh, okay. And the wind is constant from one direction when you get over there too, because you don't have trees, buildings, and stuff moving the currents around. So advantages of flying in Michigan then, at least along the coast. That's you. Well, when you're flying, you really got to be careful because everybody likes to go up and down the coast. Oh, <laughs> so you got everybody who's looking out the side window with their wingtip down, taking photos. Is that the problem? Well, let me tell you, you know, when you got closing <laughs> speeds of 200 knots, 250, 300, it don't, it's what, 15 seconds is, uh, I've got some videos that show some near misses and it's like, son of a gun. <laughs> That's like if you fly in a military operations area, uh, you can do that legally, but you uh -huh. really should tell them where you're at. And in those MOAs, those pilots are practicing high-speed turns, uh, low-altitude ground-hugging exercises, acrobatics, and you're not scheduled to be in there. So it can get quite interesting really, really quick. Oh. I imagine. Yeah, or you get into one that's got artillery fire. <laughs> <laughs> because you're going over a firing zone. It's like, what? you you really want to talk to somebody before you go into those areas. Like, are you guys <laughs> shooting real stuff today? Yeah, it seems to be something, because I, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, your wings don't do well with extra ventilation in them. Uh, I would say not. We'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room tonight. We have Karen and Eric and Derek and Dave. So quite a good turnout. Almost rhymes. Yeah. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. This first one's not so much of an article. It's just kind of a, a mixture of follow-up and things that are going on. So uh, we've covered the Ocean Cleanup, which is that nonprofit organization founded by that young man from the Netherlands. I think he was a teenager at the time. And they made the boom that went out into the ocean. Do you remember that one, Mac? Oh, yes. Yep. Well, they've launched their first official product that you can purchase. Uh, because part of what they want to do is not only capture the plastic, but they have to do something with it. And they, they didn't want to throw it right into the landfills. So they've been taking the plastics that they've been bringing in sorting it, classifying it, grinding it down into pellets, and then they're using it in manufacturing. So they're, they're, they're trying to create this this uh, uh, supply chain. So what yeah. they've done is uh, just this week, they've launched their first product that you can purchase, and it's a pair of sunglasses. Uh, so in the chat room, I pasted the, the link to it. It's the oceancleanup.com, and if you click on through their product page, you can see it, but they've actually got, it's a, it's a nice, uh, looking, uh, set of glasses. Uh, it comes in a case and you remember when they, that, uh, the first one they did and the, it broke. Yeah. Well, they've, they ground him down. He was called Wilson and they've remade him into the cases. So the case that the sunglasses come in is, is made from Wilson. And then the glasses are made from the recycled plastic that they've pulled in from the the uh, Great Pacific 
plastic garbage patch. Uh, on the inside of the glasses, there's a QR code so you can scan them and you can see a video of the uh, actual load of plastic that is in your glasses. They, they're, uh, they've tracked it to that level. They, as they clap, capture the plastic, they're, they put it in bags, uh, tag it, and then they're independently audited by a third party to verify that you know, it is in, in fact recycled plastic going into the product. That's so, a very nice site. It's clean. You mean their website? Yeah, that we're looking oh, at wow. those. Yeah. That's a very, very nice one. Very professional. Very well done. And that's a, a lot of what I've noticed with them as an organization is everything is just top notch from the engineering of the the vessels they're using to capture the plastic to the products they're making. And they, they said one of the advantages of being a nonprofit is that you know, 100% of everything they get goes into it. So when they sell these glasses, these sunglasses, it's going back in. And they're, they're saying that for every one pair of sunglasses somebody purchases, uh, that will help them fund 24 football fields worth of cleanup. Now, I don't know if it's a real football field because it looks like a soccer field to me. So I'm, I'm, I might question them on that. But, yeah, I'm uh, just looking through it. Some of the pictures are very, very awesome. I like the uh, the parachute slash drag chute with the catcher on it. A lot of this I have not seen before, uh, but it's a real good overview of what they're doing, how they're doing it, the documentation, the presentation pictures, and then I like some of the videos. Uh, like the one I'm looking at says the capture mode, accumulation mode, and the extraction mode. Those are pretty nice. Plus, it shows the expected impact. And it did that with thermal of what it looked like that area before they did it and what it looks like after. Yeah. Very yeah. significant. Yep. And uh, so not only, you know, this website they have stuff on, but if you go to YouTube, the videos on there are, are very well done. And they've done about five in the last week, which gives you some behind the scenes of just what went into making these these sunglasses mm -hmm. and at first i was thinking well why not do something practical like deck boards but i'm wondering and i think the numbers will come out later that yes they're doing something that is being recycled but how much of it can't be recycled so instead of going and doing a a product like a deck board where you know people are going to expect it at a reasonable price and it requires a lot of plastic it doesn't require a lot of plastic to make these sunglasses. So you have a high margin, uh, potential, uh, product. And it's, a, yeah, it's a good first, good first product. Cause it would, they're what I think what they're trying to do is show what it can be done with and oh, then yeah. create a demand for people wanting to use the plastic as a raw material. And then they would be able to supply it coming from, uh, capture. So the sunglasses are $199 which, you know, it's, it's a little bit more than a cheapskate like me usually spends on sunglasses, but these, these look really cool. And uh, you can register the sunglasses. So if somebody happens to scan the QR code on them uh, and they're a nice person, they, they, there's a way to get them back to you. Yeah, I did post a picture of one of the booms and all the different type of plastics that are floating into it. Mm -hmm. Which is really great when you consider what we had talked about last week or the week before, 
where they did bottom samples at the deepest part and they were finding so many thousand particles, even though they've been really, really fine, like almost like the microbeads of plastic, but they were finding them at 30,000 feet. So if we can stop this from getting that deteriorated, breaking down and finally getting to the bottom, that's going to be a big plus. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the, in the videos you'll watch and they'll, sh they'll hold something up and they'll say this, this piece of plastic could have been out there for 30 years. And, you know, some of it might be a one, a one, uh, I say liter, a one quart bottle of oil. You know, somebody used the oil in their car and then this probably was just left alongside the road, blew into the river and then goes out to the ocean and ends up there. And it was all pitted. I mean, you could tell it had been out there a long amount of time, but had they not come and picked it up, it would have eventually broken into small enough pieces and, and floated down. So I did say how many of these, uh, capture nets they have out there. I think of this large one, they've only got one, but their goal is to have more of them. So they've got, they've got one that they're, that they're doing. Uh, I think they're on the second version. I probably this next year they'll have either bring out the same one again that worked. Cause I don't know if Wilson was the one that worked or not, or put another one out, but they, they've also, you know, they're going to do the ocean cleanup, which is part of what this is going for is, uh, you know, they're hoping to sell enough of this to fund it because it's got to be expensive. You, you've got a marine type vessel that has to take the boom out there. Uh, and then you have to come back and pick it up and then capture everything that it caught. They've also got the, uh, the boats that they're putting in rivers. And I think they've got four or five of them now for collecting at the source. So they're trying to clean up what's already out there and then prevent more from getting in there and then creating this uh, supply chain to utilize the plastic that's been captured. Well, if nothing else, if anybody's out there and they get on this and look at the site, uh, they're going to find it quite interesting just to roam around, look at the different avenues, the different items they're doing. Uh, quite interesting. Yeah, and yeah, very well, well done. done. And then here we've got one. This one's from the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, and they're saying that's. Oh no, I, I'm I'm sorry, I, I'm this is the wrong one. This is uh, uh, Fort Stewart Honey Hunter Army Airfield. Uh, this is scuba training yields positive recovery results, and I may need you to translate, Matt, because there's a lot of military speak in here that I don't quite. I, I am looking for that one. I didn't load that one. Hang on a second while I find it. Okay, yeah, because they were saying stuff, and I'm like, oh, there's acronyms. I have no idea what those are. So uh, it says individuals at Fort Stewart Soldier Recovery Unit participated in self-contained underwater breathing apparatus training or scuba diving October 19th through 20th as part of the battalion's adaptive reconditioning program. Lieutenant Colonel Edward Zabinski, the SRU battalion commander, said the scuba training is one of the programs that helped Fort Stewart SRU earn the regional health command Atlantic's best SRU for three years in a row. And, and I, Mac, I'm wondering, do you know what SRU means? No, I do not. So I'm, I'm kind of, Oh, here it is up at the beginning. Uh, soldier recovery unit. Okay. 
So it must be, uh, he says, the award reflects the efforts of recovering soldiers and their cadre in their approach to help soldiers either return to active duty service or transition to civilian life. We don't look this as look at this as we're just holding on to people while they're attending medical appointments and going through recovery process. We approach this as we are their battalion. We've got a mission. It's just not medical. It's also getting their adaptive reconditioning programs like our scuba training here. Zambinski said that every day a soldier and cadre develop an initiative, oh, innovative ways to assist in the recovery. He said the battalion's focus isn't just physical, but includes soldiers' mental and spiritual well-being. Examples of activities include hunting trips, promoting family morale, welfare, recreational activities, cycling, running, swimming, marathons. The adaptive recovery program led by Yvonne Lerichel works on core physical training, but also takes the next step by having their occupational therapist and physical therapist add extra therapeutic activities such as scuba. Scuba is a whole body workout. It's an activity that the soldiers are very interested in. It helps a lot in their pain management. It expands adaptive reconditioning beyond the physical training that we would normally do. We do this program every six weeks. That way the soldiers, it's predictable. Lauren Myers, a member of the SRU Adaptive Reconditioning Team, learned about the Discover Scuba training offered by Richmond Hill based dive shop free to the public. She coordinated training with the assistance of recreational therapist Melissa Lewis and the support of the rest of the art, Crystal Scott, Victoria Ziegler, and Janet Wagner. She said when she took the lead adaptive reconditioning program, she immediately saw the value in, combine, in continuing the scuba training because of the beneficial effects of the muscular, mus, goodness, uh, mus, muscular skeletal and behavior health issues for SRU soldiers. She said she knew the scuba class would be a great addition to the adaptive reconditioning program. It not only helps the soldiers with their pain management, but it, lets, it grabs their interest too. Uh, they, the SRU soldiers, are always looking forward to it. They plan this event. They love it. As soon as we return, they're already planning for the next time. And this is uh, by Rob, was it, Leno, uh, owner of the dive shop that runs Discover Scuba program, said his happy to help the SRU soldiers. It allows them to give back to the military. He said many veterans who adopted the sport have extreme positive results. He said studies have shown water pressure at depths to about 60 feet helps the body release serotonin to the brain, provides a, san- a sense of calm and wellness. Well, I think it does. I, I, think I agree. It's great therapy. I, I, <clears throat> yeah. And I like it when they have studies that validate what you feel. Well, we know the adaptive diving programs are great. And this is one tailored for military yep. and or others, but... I think it's a great program. I'm glad it's working out. Yeah. And they're, and they're getting to it earlier. I think sometimes when you have people who need uh, help for whatever reason, uh, you know, the sooner you start on it, the better. Yes. Uh, and then the other organizations we're referring to is I think you, you've got Dive Heart and then what's uh, SUDS, I think is another one that's doing the adaptive training and therapy. So a great program. Yep. And then this one is from up north. This is the one I thought I had before. Pioneers in scuba diving in the central UP. Uh, And I won't read the whole article. Just a good article if you're into the history of diving 
and some of what's going on. Um, but just some highlights. Uh, uh, George and Betty met at NMU and married in 1956, but after graduating, left the area for work. Later, George found a job at NMU, was able to move the growing family back to Marquette. Eventually, he would have nine children. He worked as the conference director and hired Scott Holman. Uh, so what they're, what they're referring to is uh, many of us remember Jacques Cousteau and his TV shows and documentaries in the 1970s and 80s. Today we hear of diving in Lake Superior, such as the summer's lower harbor cleanup. Some uh, may know that it can take a credited course for diving at Northern Michigan University. Uh, uh, Marquette had its own dive shop back in 1970s. You could not only take the diving class, but you could study to be a certified diving instructor. The second woman to ever receive the master instruction certification with Patty. Professional Association of Diving Instructors was uh, Betty uh, Tomasa. Tomasa? Yep. I remember them people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lives in lives in Marquette. If you know George and Betty, you may know the whole story. So, and, and that's what we, we started with. But they've got some great photos in the article, uh, you know, showing uh, the tour boat. Uh, I'm glad you knew the name. I would have slaughtered that. Look, look at some of those, the wetsuits and the masks. Hey, been there, done that. Come on. <laughs> I'm, See, I'm, a, I'm a newbie. I've only been doing it 15 years. I mean, this is, uh, yeah. So just, just, just a good article. And I won't read the whole thing because it's a, a little dry just to read, but, uh, certainly fun to take a look at the pictures and, and see some of the details. So. Well, you'd see them in our world underwater. Uh -huh. uh, she used to write a column for Undersea Journal, and she did the seminar on women and diving. And somebody we know who is on that committee uh, from up north, and uh, oh, geez, what the heck was her name? Can't think of her <laughs> name now. One of those senior moments. Yeah. But uh, they did represent the Midwest and the East Coast, so they they went everywhere. And they Very also cool. worked on the Underwater Preserve Committee formation back in the day. Helped get that launched. Yep. Well, because they had the bigger wrecks buoyed and more activity up north than they did down here because they had some really good shallow water wrecks oh, up okay. around the Sioux, around, you know, Mackinac City, yeah. Sheboygan area. And the water but, uh, was, was probably a little bit clearer relative to what we had down here back absolutely then. yes it is yeah yeah so uh and then they're also talking about uh, uh diving is still taught at nmu and through today it is accredited course there is no longer a dive shop and the charter to uh tour boat was remade into a glass bottom boat so non-divers can view the wrecks from the comfort of the boat however many divers are still active in the region uh, learn more about the sport of diving in the region on November 4th when local diving enthusiast Eric Smith and Dan Fountain will discuss their adventures such as diving the shipwrecks of Isle Royal. They'll share historical images and shipwrecks, discuss the development of sports diving around Lake Superior. The live online presentation will include time for questions, $5 donation to History Center to join this program. And uh, I think it's going to be registered for the Zoom online program, uh, marquettehistory.org.
things to do. And then we're into some submarines, Mac. Um, I always love submarines. So that what's this should is the Triton the first one we should cover? Yes. Yep. Get so to the got, stuff we can't afford. Yeah. <laughs> the Triton unveils the sixty six hundred Ford slash two. The world's deepest diving personal submarine, the new craft can plunge two passengers up to 6,600 feet below water, uh, a record depth for a personal submarine. So what are we talking there? We're uh, like 2,500 meters, maybe? No, three, uh, 3,000 meters. Or, uh, uh, 3,000 feet. But well, 6,600 feet is what they're saying, but I was just trying to figure out what that, do the metric conversion in my head. Um, Triton Submarines, a Florida-based manufacturer founded in 2007, has been known for its deep, deep diving subs capable of deploying from yachts and traveling more than 3,000 feet below the water. Now the company has unveiled its latest design, a personal sub that will take two passengers at depth of 6,600 feet, further than any personal watercraft ever created. To reach those new depths, Triton constructed an advanced acrylic hull for its passengers to sit while maneuvering below the water. Traditionally, acrylic spheres and submarines are made from casting two sphere halves together. Instead, the hull, the Triton 6600 forward slash two, is built from a single slabs of acrylic that are heated into a pliable forming temperature, then molded into the frame. The acrylic has always been the problem in the past. There was no one who could make the material thick enough with the quality you needed. To have a sub go to such depths as with the new 6600 Ford slash two said, uh, principal designer, John Ramsey, the innovative construction is the big spear and the properties of this acrylic are absolutely fantastic. They're substantially better than what we typically be required for an acrylic pressure vessel. It's eight inches thick. It features the thickest acrylic sphere in the submersible to date. According to Michael Henley, Triton's U.S. Director of Sales and Marketing. Triton's new submarine is uh, 6.9 feet tall, carries about 550 pounds. Four thrusters powered by 24-volt batteries allow for speeds up to three knots, roughly three and a half miles per hour, enabling one pilot and one passenger to spend 12 hours admiring marine life. Since sunlight can travel only 600 feet or so below the water, engineers are working on the... Uh, mounted powerful lights in the craft to ensure its passengers could see the underwater surroundings. The safety features include an additional four full days of reserve oxygen, emergency food and water, and emergency breathing equipment. Uh, the new Triton will cost roughly $5.5 million, expected to be on the market within the next two years. When was this from? Did they have a date on it? Oh, March 14th, 2016. So I was saying, hey, I... I, I I was thinking that uh, that should be out by now. Let me see. Can we find that? It was just going to do the same. Yeah, let me double check too. Yeah, Triton submarines. Because I did see something on TV once. And it was kind of aligned with this. Uh, and we, we may have covered this. Well, these are definitely the millionaire or the billionaire. Oh, yeah. Clubs. Well, I've been seeing a lot of, ooh, two, did, can you get to the website? 
I can get to a couple of different ones. What you got? Did you find something different? Well, tritonsubs.com. But when I clicked on it, it said site's not available. <laughs> Let's say I've got a 2017. I'm not getting anything current, though. That's interesting, though. Makes you wonder why. Oh, okay. Well, why is they they probably haven't sold any. I'm trying I mean, to remember if, if it was Lake Michigan where they were, somebody was, I don't know if it was them, was testing out the acrylic bubble. And uh, it, it busted. It was on uh, a video I was watching. And it uh, killed one of the two guys on board. Ooh. So the aspect of talking about the, the shell, it was a two-half put together, and it ruptured at the seam. I, I did get, I did finally get the site to load. Yeah, so tritonsubs.com. Uh, let's see. They've got the Triton deep view, the Triton 660 forward slash two, the Triton 660 forward slash nine. Oh, Triton 1653, the project Neptune, the Triton 1657. Triton 3301, Triton 3303, Triton 3306, 75. I wonder if they've made all these, but they, they've, wow, they've got quite a variety of them. Huh. But I think it, it looks like that sphere is kind of their secret sauce there. You can kind of, you can kind of almost see the, the history in doing it. Um, you know, the site is actually very, very interesting, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It didn't load at first, and I'll blame my internet for it. But now that it's come up, boy, they've got quite a bit. Uh, and like the deep view, which uh, will go down to 100 meters, but you can tell that's aimed at uh, excursions because it will hold between 12 and uh -huh. 66 passengers. So it must be depending on what size available capacities from 12 to well, the 12 to 96, they will offer some level of comfort refinement. What's more, feature exclusive optically perfect acrylic, which completely disappears from view in the water. Wow. It said, uh, a KPI report by a leading New York City media specialist recently confirmed that in the last four years, digital media coverage created by the submersibles have achieved audience figures in excess of 9.5 billion and generated an advertising equivalency value of $88 million just from the images they've captured. That's freaking amazing. Yeah. Well, we've seen that where somebody will talk about discovering a shipwreck. Yeah. And yeah. all the newspapers just go completely nuts for it. And, I mean, we look at it. So it would go to reason that others are as well. I was just looking at their 24-seat. Deep view tourist submarine. That is awesome looking. Uh, let's see how it went down to 24 passengers, pilot, co-pilot down to 100 meters, 328 feet, and air-conditioned comfort, providing panoramic views, which basically is just what you got when you look at this one. This is awesome. Basically, it's a glass tube big enough to walk in or walk through. So I take it they must have figured this out. <laughs> but uh, the same token, it's one of those, if you got the money, you can do anything you want. Oh, yeah. 
and you can tell the reason they've 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 done so well and uh, invested so much in this website is because they want millionaires to, or not not you you can't be a millionaire and buy this. You have to be a billionaire, really. I mean, who else has you know five six million dollars just to toss well, around? Well, and then you, smaller jets, you know, who buy the jets? I can buy one of these. A jet, I'm sure you could write off somehow how do you write off a submarine i mean you just you mean for travel and stuff yeah yeah i just well, or you, know, you get you, you get your it, business to pick it up yeah if you use it in marketing and then you did use the video and or pictures from it you could do that yeah takes perfect uh, prospective clients with you i like the tourism aspect of being able to get in i i wonder is there anything in lake michigan that because there's we've got some of those deeper wrecks that even divers like us we're not going to get down to i mean i'm not going to do trimix tech diving with a you know three hour <laughs> decompression but you could conceivably with some of these subs be able to do it you know and take your grandma with you well there's very few ships here in Lake Michigan and or Superior, well, at least here on in Michigan, that you couldn't hit with a sub like that. Right. You know, catch it on the shelf. You know, that'd be quite interesting. I'd love to be able to go down and take a look just at some of those up in uh, Sioux, Michigan yeah. City, Mackinac City, and the comforts of something like that. That'd be pretty cool. I think on the big ones, though, the launch boat, that would be expensive. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you'd have to have, you'd have to have enough of the density. You know, if it's, if it's, if the two seater is 5.5 million, what's the 66 seater going for? <laughs> yeah, well, we'll be talking about what we can afford in a minute. But very cool. Yeah, this, this is one of those daydream sites. You, you have to do is buy a couple lottery tickets and then you go and yeah, yeah. take a look at these. So you're saying the next one might is a little bit more in our price range? Well, this is the kind of stuff that is in our backyard here. We can do this. Yeah. Local man builds world's deepest diving homemade submarine. And this was just from October 17th. Uh, posted in the Columbia Valley Pioneer. Uh, Fairmont resident Hank Pronk is a deep fellow. No, that doesn't mean he's the type of guy who likes inquisitive philosophic discussions over campfires. He is much more literal and deep fellow. Pronk builds homemade submarines and then uses them to plumb the depths of local lakes. Indeed, one of Pronk's latest submarines, the Elementary 3000 or E3000, is in fact the deepest diving homemade cruise submarine in the world. Uh, uh, the other homemade submarine in Honduras, that is close, but that's not quite equal. Prank told Pioneer, adding his submarine has been pressure tested to depths at 2,900 feet in a pressure chamber in Vancouver. The E-3000 and a newer, smaller submarine, the AP-400, which Planck built as a isolation project this year while stuck at home during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic are the two most recent of his eight submarines he's made over the past four decades, stretching back to when he was 16, as BC and the rest of Canada emerged from pandemic lockdowns this summer. Pronk 
has taken a submarine out for plunges in local lakes around the Kunt was it Kuntene posting YouTube videos of man dives with the AP four hundred in Premier Lake in August and the E three thousand in Kutene Lake in September. E dives were testing the waters, so to speak, allowing Pronk to work out any bugs. He's planning to take the E three thousand to the wreck of paddle steamer SS City of Ainsworth, which sits nearly 400 feet down the bottom of Kuntany Lake sometime in March or April. The wreck is a designated historic site. The city of Ainsworth was the third sternwheeler in Kuntany Lake and sank in the dramatic conditions of Gale Force Storm in 1898, taking nine lives as it did. Uh, E-depth is extreme enough to remains of the wrecks were not discovered for 90 years. And this depth plus low visibility, potentially dangerous surface conditions on the lake mean that only one scuba diver successfully reached the ship. Prong's dive will be the first submarine trip to the site. Building these submarines is no easy feat. Aside from the custom bent occupant, occupant sphere, Prong designs and creates all the submerse, uh, submarine systems and parts themselves. But then again, engineering and tinkering are points for Prong. I actually enjoy building them more than using them. Using them is often a big deal. You need a custom trailer, a boat ramp, special compressor. There's a lot more to diving in a sub than having a submarine. For me, the design and creating are just what really pikes my curiosity. With all the information available online these days, you can really figure out how to make anything you want. For the 3,000 footer, I just really wanted to push the bar a bit and see what I could do. A homemade sub that can go 3,000 feet, that's about as deep as you can go. That's really serious depth and making a submarine that goes beyond that depth becomes prohibitively expensive. Pronk is part of the Inner Space Science, a nonprofit group that connects private submarines with scientists and educators. Uh, Pronk has volunteered to pass to take researchers to the bottom of Lake Tahoe, Flathead Lake, and the submarines. I do get around with it. One of the funniest parts of these projects is traveling with a submarine at boat ramps that always draws a crowd. You end up meeting somebody really interesting people. What's it like being the bomb of local lakes? It's like being in outer space. You're in enclosed space, just hanging weightless. You can't see very far. For me, it's very relaxing. At 200 feet, it's usually pitch dark, almost absolutely black, but I have plenty of lighting. When Pronk says that the enclosed sphere is somewhat tight, he isn't kidding. The sphere has a 48-inch diameter. And don't forget, if you go deep enough in the submarine, there are 157 tons of force pushing down on the hatch, essentially from a physics standpoint trying to push hatch on itself it's no problem for me i'm not claustrophobic pronk's favorite local date lake to dive in a submarine is premier lake it's only 105 feet deep but there's a little canyon that transects the lake bottom it's super narrow and quite interesting there's a lot down there moya lake is also neat uh, there's a weird channel at the bottom of the lake with any zigzags all over and intersects with each other i don't know why they are it's kind of eerie when inspires Pronk to build the submarines instead of pursuing a more conventional hobby? I really have no idea. I don't have an answer for that. I just like it, he said. When you have an interest, you pursue it. This winter, Pronk is building an indoor swimming pool so he can dive with submarines even when the local lakes are frozen. How deep of a pool do you make indoors that so you can put your submarine in it? Or is he just talking about scuba diving? I think he's got to be talking scuba diving because otherwise that's going to be freaking big. Yeah. 
He is often accompanied on his submarine dives by his son, Anthony, and his friend, uh, Brian Nadwidney, who is a technical diver and helps with testing and safety backup to pilot the submersibles. You can follow along as Pronk prepares to dive the city of Antwerp through videos he regularly posts on his YouTube channel. Well, I'm going to have to take a look at his YouTube channel then. You know, he says prohibitively expensive, but does he say how much he spends on it anywhere? I didn't see any price. Okay, you see uh, the picture I just posted in the in the club site or the pod site. That's yeah. the K two fifty. Yeah, I, are you familiar with the kit with the with Kettner, Kettner subs? Uh, He's a submarine. He, he built them. Uh, there's plans out for two of them because I looked into building one of these got thirty years ago, uh, and I bid on one three years ago and lost the damn bid. Otherwise, I'd have had one of these. Oh. Uh, K250 is what we see here. That one you can buy today for $18,000 turn, meaning with the trailer and all and instructions, $18,000. Now, is that, K- a, is that a wet sub? No, that's dry sub. Okay. Uh, that one's been modified to hold three people. Generally, it's one, the pilot plus an observer in the 250s. Uh, the K350 is a bigger sub. And if you did it per the specs for Lloyds of London, you can get the K250 or 350 with a maximum depth of 600 feet. So that would basically be pretty much the majority of wrecks we're going to see in Lake Michigan that, you know, you could go to at 300, 600 feet. Mm-hmm. And that's a very you know, doable number for cost. Now for viewing, I see they have hatches around what I would call like the conning tower. Is there something forward? I see like an opening, but I'm I'm not sure. Is that like a dome? Yeah. It's a, it's a dome in the front. Okay. I'll Mm -hmm. show you another image. On this one here, you can see, well, you can see the right in the front, there's a dome port. Okay. And then you, of course, got your con with your viewpoints. I've seen a couple of them here. I had a chance to buy one, and it just pisses me off badly. Wood told used to have a K350. They mm-hmm. refurbished it and then sold it. Refurbished with articulator arms, all the electronics, $20,000. You pick up one week. Wow. Had I seen that, I'd have mortgaged or sold one of my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have had that sucker in my garage. That's all I can tell you. Wow. Now, the K3, uh, K600, I'll show you a picture of that one. Or did I? Oh, that is the K600. Uh, that one's available if you want it. 35000 as is. You know, it's really not that. Uh, it, it's a reasonable price for what they are. Well, that one there is tested uh, by Lloyd's Registry. At, at and for a depth of maximum 850 feet. Right. Even and though the maximum operating is normally going to be 600 because you want to keep your reserve. Right. Well, what I like about that amount is, say you had something going wrong or you goofed up or whatever, as long as you didn't damage yourself when you got to the bottom, that's survivable. What they did on this and what the plans I had for mine was is you have uh, an umbilical that goes to it and you would tow a surface buoy and or to a surface ship. 
And I got a picture of one in Florida, which is nice. They took a um, pontoon boat, basically, extended it, and they put this would be on the forward deck. They'd bring it up in a pool. So then you could take the pontoon out and take it to yeah. the site you wanted to dive. Because well, you're not going to take it from your port all the way through the harbor, out to the Havana, for example. That's a long ride. You're not going to do it. You're going to use your electric. Right. So if you had it on the pontoon boat, which would engines on the aft, you can tootle out there pretty good. Oh. Then you what? hook um, a line on it that one does a, sub, a buoy on the surface, so you always know where it's at, that if it had a problem. The second part, it had an attachment for it that you could also go down with that line up to your surface support that gave you air and power. So all your battery reserves you had, all your O2 reserves, your scrubber reserves. So if you wound up on the bottom, you can last two days if your line broke. Right. Which would give them tons of time to recover you. Because they had well, lifting uh, lugs on it. Guys could go down, put on lift bags, and bring your butt back up. Yeah. God, I, I need to do a business plan for something like this because this just makes so much sense. Yeah, but you got to be a little more svelte. That I'm, I'm getting to the part that I'm a little bigger than I need to be in there. But uh, oh yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. I, I've, I've, I've seen some of the photos, and y all your sub operators are all uh, skinny guys. Yeah, <laughs> and that is probably a strict diet requirement too. You know. Well. Probably not. I'm going to show you another, and you'll like. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just thinking like no beans, no cabbage. Uh, that's an affirmative there. <laughs> I've got a folder I made on some. I checked out seven of these in Michigan and Ohio to look at how people built them. Two were wet subs, and five were this type. One guy was an ex-Navy. He actually had a con, a con and t the tower came off a real sub and the hatch. The oh. one of the ones he was in in the Navy. I was in one that was open circuits, meaning all the electrical. It's like, I don't think I really want to be on this one if you get any water inside of it because you're going to die. <laughs> but it was still interesting getting into it. But you'll see this guy here's a little, sort of looks like you, Darren. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, so we'll he just blame it on the shirt. Well, he's looking <laughs> into it. <laughs> is this his sub or he's just like uh, peeking in? Yeah, because I was, well, I was thinking sub. the same thing. Yeah, I was it? gonna say, see, you that'll fit you. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, it, it would be cool. Oh, hell yes. And the launching wouldn't be, I mean, you could take this on the trailer, any lake we've got, especially the inland lakes. Launch that little sucker, he'd have a blast. Well, I I like the idea of a pontoon boat. I've always wanted to have a had to have an excuse for a boat with a moon pool. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's just nothing cooler about the, than than that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I love subs. That's all there is to it. Oh. I get lost talking about those guys. Oh yeah, yeah. This is this is great. Well, actually, they have a meet. Uh, one of them was in Michigan a couple of years ago, and they had like nine or 12 show up to show this is what I can do. And uh, some of them would take you out for a couple of bucks. They'd take you out for a tour. I wish I'd have known about it before they uh, had it and it was over with. Yeah, I mean, because that's what I'm looking at this. I'm, I'm thinking that 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, you'd have to go and look and see what the insurance is like and some other things. Well, yeah. Uh, and or, and or if you want to get certified by Lloyd's, that costs you more money. If you actually put it in a chamber to test it, that takes more money. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're awesome. Love it. Do it in a heartbeat. If I ever win the lottery, you can bet your buttons I'll have one. Yeah, we, we, we just need to... What, what happened to all our millionaire? F- <laughs> why, why aren't they buying? I think the Don't answer is if we had any millionaire friends, they wouldn't be millionaire friends long because they'd have already spent it. Uh, well, thank you for sharing that. It made, it's going to make me dream, and it gives me a reason to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> I have to start saving up. So I could fit in that one for five point five million. I think that was big enough. Oh, you fit in some of these for a lot less. I mean, these are in our range. We can do this. I can already see a mud club on the side of it. You know, we give little tours. We we can actually probably find that one sunken boat there in Pawpaw with that one. Yeah. I wonder how these would be in a river. Yeah, thrusters, uh, that's an issue there. you got to watch for the forward thrust and kind of current. Uh-huh. And that's See, probably the, the limiting factor is how much current do you have. Right. And and maybe you'd have to do something like a high line being thrown down where you're you're more of an observation, an in-water observation platform. Yeah. But that's where if you did have that, having a, uh, so a surface support oh, the yeah. umbilical. So you'd be doing power from the surface, saving your batteries. That would be a smart thing to do. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, I think that does it for scuba in the news. So uh, have we heard of anybody getting any diving in? Well, actually, I do believe we have. I think uh, Jim was out. I think. Even Karen, I'm, Karen can confirm it or not, but I think they were out uh, recovering the uh, sailboat buoys for the yacht club. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because uh, they were going to do that Sunday. I was I was going to go, and he had enough people, so I I didn't make it. That's yep, so much winterizing to do. That, I believe that uh, Kevin and company, uh, Amy, were out and about doing some scanning and looking at uh, – what, the Ann Arbor 5, maybe? And mm-hmm. what else did they dive on? They did two dives, 70-foot visibility. They said they had an algae layer, which I thought was quite interesting. Visibility about 70 feet. So a good time. The pictures were pretty nice of uh, his scanning devices. So I'm glad to see he's getting out there. This time of year, it's, you know, catch his catch can, and when it's flat, go out. Yeah. Yeah. In in the chat room, Dave said that he uh, was at Gilboa a week ago. Was that with the Dave? Was that with the Great Lakes Wrecking Crew? Uh, and then Eric uh, was is pointing out that simply Scuba is back online. Uh, ah. Yeah, I, I I knew that they had they whatever the UK calls it receivership or whatever they were they were in and looking for buyers, but I figured that they would get bought up. They had a pretty good brand going. 
Yeah. Oh, Wrecking I, Crew was three weeks ago. Uh, that's that's a, how that's how my 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 time is. So he's just a yeah, couple. Bob of was there too, I think. Bob yeah. went on that one. That was a three weeks yeah. ago one. What Jim needs on his boat, or anybody who's recovering those buoys, they really need a hoist that goes out away from the boat and an electric motor on it to help bring that up. Because those suckers can be freaking heavy and awkward. Been there. I've done that before with them, and. Uh, I having a hoist would facilitate getting those up a lot. And Karen's concurring. That's what it was. Heavy and awkward. I concur on that one. That's when having extra people on board is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's always like to have that support. Oh, you can't do it without it. You can't. Yeah. Well, that, that, yeah, I've my my dream boat, you know, along with the moon pull, would be like a winch, you know, like a powered winch where you drop something down, you could pull it right on up. Well, haven't you seen the two boats for sale in the St. Joe Harbor? One oh, is okay. a boat for marine diving. No, don't tell me that. <laughs> everything you could possibly want. What? And there was a salvage boat also there for sale. Are they getting out of it? Is that what's happening? No, no, no. This was this was a. Uh, you could actually carry. I think it was certified for nine or twelve divers. Oh, if I. Did it have a chamber too? No chamber. No. <laughs> oh, I, I was think I was thinking you know because. Isn't it, it for OSHA? You're required to have a chamber. Did, no, not for commercial. Yes, and depending on what you're diving, and how deep. And actually, your divers are going to require it if you're doing some really deep crap. You don't want to do that without a, a chamber, especially after what we learned last week. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll find those and, and we'll talk about those a little bit next week. Yeah. And, yeah. Yes, I, and yes, I do have a topic today for the. Okay. Safety. Well, let's go ahead and head on to that. What, what's, okay. Um, well, yeah. no, we've been talking about, you know, are you doing your buddy checks? Are you thinking ahead in your dive? Are you doing a dive briefing before? Are you doing an after action report or after action discussion? When you get back, we've been talking about items you can do to help make your diving smarter, safer. Well, let's talk about what if you don't. It's called scuba fatalities. Now, scuba diving fatalities or deaths occurring while scuba diving as a consequence or as a consequence of scuba diving. Now, in actuality, the risk of dying during recreational, scientific, commercial diving is really small. And on scuba deaths, deaths are usually associated with poor gas management, yep, poor buoyancy control, equipment misuse, entrapment, rough water conditions, pre-existing health. Some fatalities are in, you know, it's going to happen and caused by unforeseeable situations escalating out of control, though the majority of diving fatalities are attributed and can be attributed to human error on the part of the victim. And we have discussed that many times. Equipment failure is rare in open circuit scuba. While the cause of death is commonly recorded as drowning, this is mainly the consequence of an uncontrolled series of events taking place in the water. Arterial gas embolism is also frequently cited as the cause of death, and it too is the consequence of other factors 
leading to an uncontrolled and badly managed ascent, possibly aggravated by medical conditions. Now, a quarter of diving fatalities are associated with cardiac events, mostly in older divers, 25%. There is a fairly large body of data on diving fatalities, but in many cases, the data is poor due to the standard of investigation and reporting. Ms. Hendred's research, which could improve diver safety. Now, scuba diving fatalities have a major financial impact by way of lost income, lost business, insurance premium increases, and, of course, high litigation costs. Now, diving fatality data published in the Diving Medicine for Scuba Divers, and this is the early second find, it's 2015, is 90% of the fatalities died with their weight belt on. 86% of them were alone when they died or they were diving solo or separated from their buddy. 50% did not inflate their buoyancy compensator. 25% first got into difficulty while on the surface. 50% died on the surface. 10% were under training when they died. 10% had been advised that they were medically unfit to dive. 5% were cave diving and 1% of divers attempting a rescue died as a result. And several of these, of course, were you died with the belt on, didn't inflate your BC. So some of these are a combination of the items we just talked about. Very seldom do they say they ever found a diver with his weight belt off or weight pouches gone. Now, the cause of death on the certificates, they said 80% of the death were ultimately attributed to drowning, but other factors usually combine to incapacitate the diver in a sequence culminating in their drowning. And that's really more of a consequence of the medium in which the accidents occurred than the actual death. Often the drowning obscures the real cause. Scuba divers should not drown unless there are other contributory factors, such as they didn't carry an extra breathing gas they didn't have an extra bailout regulator on that other tank. Equipment is designed to help them avoid that kind of issue. So drowning occurs as a consequence of preceding problems such as cardiac disease, pulmonary barotrauma, unmanageable stress, unconsciousness from any cause, water aspiration, trauma, equipment difficulties, environmental hazards, inappropriate response to an emergency, or failure to manage the gas supply. And you keep hearing about that. Managed, didn't do their gas supply right. The data gathered in relation to actual causes of death is changing. Although drownings and arterial gas embolisms are cited at the top three causes of diver deaths, stating these as solitary causes does not recognize any pre-existing health issues. Researchers may know the actual cause of death, but the sequence of events that led to the cause of death is not clear, especially when local officials or pathologists make assumptions. In many diving designations, resources are not available for the comprehensive investigations or complete autopsies. The 2010 Dan Diving Fatalities Workshop noted that listing drowning as a cause of death is ineffective in determining what actually occurred in an incident. And the lack of information is the primary reason for personal injury lawsuits filed in the industry. 
Now they talk about the manner of death. Manner of death is deemed to be accidental or due to misadventure where this is applicable, which is usually the cause in the case. The accident leading to the death is seldom analyzed sufficiently to be used in determining the probable sequence of events, particularly the triggering events, and therefore is not useful, or usually useful, for improving diver safety. Chain of events leading to diving fatalities is varied in detail, but they have common elements. A triggering event, which leads to a disabling or harmful event, causing a disabling injury, and that injury could be fatal or lead to drowning. One or more of four events may not be unidentifiable. Death usually followed a sequence or combination of events, none of which, or most of which, have been survivable in isolation. In 940 fatalities, statistics studied by Dan suggest that only one-third of the triggers could be identified. And the most common were, again, insufficient gas, entrapment, equipment problems. Disabling the agents were identified in one-third of the cases, which was emergency ascent, insufficient gas, buoyancy trouble. Now, disabling injuries. Disabling injuries were identified in nearly two-thirds of the cases. The criteria for identifying a disabling injury by forensic judgments were assessed by or specified. Asphyxia with or without aspiration of water and no evidence of a previous disabling injury. Triggering events associated with asphyxia included 40% were due to entanglement in kelp, wreckage, mooring lines, fishing lines, nets, and entrapment in confined spaces or under the ice. 32% was insufficient gas when it was the first identifiable, first identifiable problem, but generally the reason for lack of gas was not determined. 15% were problems with equipment, which included regulator, high flow, free flow, unexpected high gas consumption, diver error in the use of scuba apparatus, buoyancy compensatory failure, weighing suit and or dry suit. 11% were, were rough water conditions, including high seas, strong currents, lousy surf at the beaches, rocky shores, and piers. And disabling agents associated with asphyxia included, as one we are going to know, insufficient gas, triggered by entrapment, equipment problems, high gas consumption due to heavy exercise and rough conditions. A 17% buoyancy problem triggered by over and or underweighting, lack of inflation gas for the buoyancy compensator, or overinflation of the buoyancy compensator or dry suit. And of course, 13%, that emergency ascent triggered by entrapment, lack of breathing gas, especially associated with asphyxia and lung overpressure injury. And it said gas area, um, arterial gas embolism with gas detected in cerebral arteries as evidence, evidence of lung rupture and a history of accelerated ascents. Uh, Say again, the triggers were, as always, insufficient gas. I don't got any gas. 
grabbing a problem. It had a major free flow. Entangle, entanglement or entrapment, along with insufficient gas and entrapment, and you die. Cardiac incidences were 26% where chest discomfort was indicated by the diver. Distress displayed with no obvious cause and a history of cardiac disease and autopsy results. Trauma was only 5% where a traumatic incident was witnessed or determined by autopsy. The cause of injury was obvious, included incidents of being struck by a watercraft, boat motor, tumbled over a rocky shoreline by surf, electric shock, and interactions with marine animals. Some could possibly have been avoided by the diver. Traumatic injuries were most commonly associated with rough water conditions and being a frequent diver. Decompression sickness was only 3.5% based on symptoms, signs, and autopsy findings. Triggers for DCS, number one was insufficient gas, followed by emergency ascent with omitted decompression. Next one was multiple repetitive dives with short surface intervals, gas loss in a free flow regulator, cannot control ascent or dry suit inflator malfunction, sticking on, dragged deep by a speared fish, normally associated with spearfishing without scuba, and DCS was associated with deep diving, diving alone, emergency ascent with omitted decompression. Unexplained loss of consciousness, where diver was discovered unconscious without an obvious cause. Triggers included deep dives, diabetes, nitrox dives, including seizure at where oxygen pressure was normally considered safe at one bar. And again, loss of consciousness associated with diabetes, frequent divers or frequent diving, and beginning divers. And the last they talked about was inappropriate gas at only 2%, breathing gas supplied contaminated by toxic levels of carbon monoxide, or selection of gas with insufficient or excessive oxygen content for the depth. Those are the interesting readings, but the common factor appears to be you ran out of air and you panicked. So, so much for diving fatalities for today. Wow, yeah. It is, it's not funny, but when you think about it, if everybody carried a bailout and used it accordingly, the numbers would go down. Yeah. Because you wouldn't have that, oh my God, I got to get to the surface. Oh my God, I'm going to miss my deco. And if you cut those two out and you didn't do something stupid like, okay, is diving, go inside a wreck when you know better and didn't have the right equipment. So most of those are preventable. Yeah. Well, in, in the case of uh, a bailout, uh, do you think that also a portion of that would be training? Because you, you can't give a new diver a bailout and expect them to know how to use it. I don't know. If you can tell them to use an octopus, I don't know. Yeah. I still find it freaking amazing. How often have you been on the surface of a boat, you know, after a boat dive, offshore dive, and you're tired, you're out of air? and you don't do something with your freaking weight belts, and you didn't inflate your BC, 
Have you ever struggled on the surface with your weight belt? Um, Even with the PC on? Moderately, maybe. I mean, but I, I, I've always had air. So, yeah, you know, maybe I... Yeah, we've pressed, the, we've pressed the envelope a little bit. But let's say you did have air in the PC and all of a sudden it went bad or ruptured. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah Do you, you think you would have got rid of your weight belt? Or your weights? I would hope so. I would too, but it's like... I mean, just ah, not being in that situation. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I've, because we've been covering this in the podcast enough, I've, I'm always thinking about that, you know, even on a dive, I'll be, you know, as we're coming up the line, because uh, part of it is just, you gotta, if you don't plan for it, you, you don't do it. I mean, the, well, the training gives you the muscle memory and then you have to think about it saying, you know, it's. You don't need to save that. Cause I, I think when I first got into diving, you know, there's that little bit of, you know, you don't want to cancel dive cause you've, you know, you've rented gear and you've got everything and you don't want to lose that. Yep. And then there's also the, you know, who wants to drop a weight belt? You know, even if you're in a, in a challenging situation, do you believe that it's not going to be survivable? I, I know that whenever we bo uh, we dive on a, a boat like uh, Bob's, inflatable, quite often I will toss up, inflate the BC, of course, I'm on the surface. I take my weight pouch to flop them over the boat. Yeah. If I'm not doing that, we've got the taglines on the boat hanging off. I hook that mm -hmm. on my D-ring. I shuck out the whole BC. Yeah. And now yeah. I'm totally free, and I don't have any weight. And I can yeah. swim with my wet suit and or dry suit. Oh, yeah. But if you do your dry suit, you're unhooking that at the same time, but you still had air in your dry suit. Well, I dove a lot on Bob's boat, and that was just the normal way of doing it. The first thing yeah. when you got to the surface, you took the weight belt off, and you slid it over the side of the Zodiac, and then, like you said, you clipped off the uh, uh, the the BC, and you left your fins on so that you could help propel yourself a little bit because uh, you kind of had to time yeah. it with the waves to you kind of launch yourself in the boat and it's it was it it got to be funny because the first few times you did it it was it was a little challenging but i can remember one time i did it and i think i i i swear i came out of the water to my knees before coming in the boat is everything just worked out just right i can remember though diving in lake michigan in three-foot seas. Now, three-foot commercial diving, we always dove at six feet. We that was it because that was just too much. Even with the, you know, even with their uh, deco platform and we had a winch and all that crap, uh, was three feet. I have been out there. Three feet's a hell of a lot. Trying to get on the back of a boat doesn't have a if you do not have a swim platform. Because yes. if you got a swim platform, it's going up and down. You can actually roll into the platform. And you know you're not going to drown. You're going to get you're going to get really wet. Yeah. But if you don't have that platform, and you're heavily weighted, one you can't take your weights out and hand them up. Generally, you get to the ladder, you try to take your your fins off then. But how often have you noticed people taking their mask off, taking their regulator out of their mouth, in the water before they get on the ladder and get in into that boat? I mean, you fall off backwards, 
Yeah. And your regulator is out of your mouth or your mask is gone or both. And you're not going to find that regulator. Oh, right. Yeah. You're, you're at that point, you're going to have to completely fall off away from the boat, sweep for the regulator, put it in your mouth. And if you do have your weights on, I mean, it could be a unpleasant day for you. And and that's why back in the day, if I'm doing boat diving, I used a necklace, you know, a regulator necklace. Mm-hmm. So I know where the damn thing was when I take it out of my mouth. You know, it's at my chin just about. Yeah. I don't, I haven't seen a person wear a regulator necklace in ages. Now, when you say regular, because I, I usually have the, uh, my uh, spare around my, my neck. Is that what you're referring to? No. Uh, it's basically a rubber ring around it that goes around my regulator mouthpiece. So mm-hmm. if I take it out, it's right there in my chin. So if it got knocked out, it's right at my chin. Yeah. Well, that's where I've got my, uh, you know, uh, my primary I don't have on the that, but my backup I do. So I have the long hose yep. for my primary because if I'm going to donate one, that's going to be on the long hose. And then I've got my uh, octopus is, is right there on the, I, uh, you know, surgical tubing. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm out there wreck diving, I very seldom have an octopus. I have my bailout. Yep. Yeah, as long as long as you have another source of uh Yep. Air and a regulator. Yep. And that's the one that's got my best regulator, the one I I make sure is working, the one that gets tuned up whether I'm using it or not, that one in my tank. Yep. I I, I on a, any kind of out in the big lake dive, I feel totally naked if I do not have a bailout. Well, that's got to be on my, my list for this next year. I mean, I, I've been doing them for the deeper wrecks. I have a bailout, but I probably just need to have one for most of the dives. Uh, I go in max wreck. I always have a bailout, and we always have that tank. As far, last time I dove, we always yeah. put that one tank down there by the anchor, by the strobe that Bob puts on the line 10 feet off the line, off the yeah. bottom. I mean, because that way, you know, all I got to do is get back to that line. I got air. I mean, that's only 70 feet, 72 feet. But, mm-hmm. hey, uh, you can die in 72 feet of water. Yeah. Yep. I don't have gills. So. Well, let's see. I, I don't think we got any diving plans coming up. I haven't. Well, we got no paper, and with the uh, virus, I don't know if we're going to have the turkey dive. Uh, yeah. We can still have one, but uh, the week I had the uh, dry suit get back in the water dive, I had I was out there waiting. I had one guy show up from Chicago who wanted to check out what the divers were doing, <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't going to stick around for an hour and a half until I got back to unzip my suit. Yeah. Well. So hopefully we'll get into water. Yeah. Maybe not this week, but for sure in November. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank everybody who's been listening and following along. If you download the program, we certainly appreciate it. If you'd like to follow us, you can hit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. On Twitter at scubaobsessed. 
if you have the means and the ability and you're getting value from the show, we'd certainly appreciate your support. We're on uh, Patreon, so you click on scubaobsessed.com, head on over to our Patreon link, and $3 or more gets you early access to our show notes. Tonight it wasn't so early. <laughs> it's probably just a couple minutes before the show. It seemed like there's one other thing I wanted to cover. Oh, well, I'll remember it later on. <laughs> that's usually how it goes. Maybe it was a joke. Maybe that's what I was remembering. I was just so excited for it. You're so excited for the joke? Yeah. I'm, I'm sitting down. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of goes with the uh, talking about some flying, which we, we did. Oh. Did we do it in the show or was it before the show? I it's kind of all blurring together now. I don't know. I just <laughs> yeah, we, them off. And then yeah. when you turn something on or cut it out, I don't know. Yeah. Ah, we leave most of it in. So here we go. A woman was flying from Seattle to San Francisco. Unexpectedly, the plane was diverted to Sacramento along the way. The flight attendant explained that there would be a delay. And if the passengers wanted to get off the aircraft and deplane, they would reboard in about 50 minutes. Everybody got off the plane except for one lady who was blind. A man had noticed her as he walked by and could tell the lady was blind because her guide dog lay quietly underneath the seats in front of her throughout the entire flight. He could also tell she had flown this very flight before because the pilot approached her, calling her by name, saying, Kathy, we are in Sacramento for almost an hour. Would you like to get off and stretch your legs? The blind lady said, no, no thanks, but maybe Buddy would like to stretch his legs. All the people in the gate area came to complete standstill and they looked up and saw the pilot walk off the plane with a guide dog for the blind. Even worse, the pilot was wearing sunglasses. People scattered, not only trying to change planes, but also to change airlines. Most of it's automatic nowadays. What the heck? <laughs> you just... <laughs> wow, has there ever been an ADA claim saying... Uh... You're discriminating against me because I can't see? Uh, probably not because uh, the medical part. <laughs> pretty, pretty clear. Pretty clear. They haven't gotten that clear. point yet. Yeah. <laughs> so until next time, go out there and get wet. Stay safe. <laughs>